there are low-grade things that we're exposed to that we just don't get sick from. We don't really have symptoms or we're not enough to notice. Plus, things are coming from our gut, from our gums, from our sinuses, from our skin, entering our bloodstream. And if we if if we're healthy, if our tissues are healthy, if our cells are healthy, then these things can become dormant and just stay in our tissues. But if you're under chronic stress, then they can reactivate. And that's when problems start. Hey guys, welcome back to the Digest This Podcast. Today I am interviewing Dr. Bill Rawls. Now he developed insomnia, fatigue, joint pain, muscle pain, and was then diagnosed with fibromyalgia in his mid-40s. He also developed chest pain and heartbeat irregularity, which suggested something more than just fibromyalgia. But all his tests came back as normal. He was frustrated and began to search outside conventional medicine. Then a Lyme test indicated he had Lyme disease. After being diagnosed, he developed a protocol for using medicinal herbs in massive doses to combat his disease. People around him thought he was crazy to go about this natural approach, but within three months, he felt human again. And by six months, life seemed normal for Bill. So today we discuss how to get healthy on a cellular level, his newest book, The Cellular Wellness Solution, and his story will certainly inspire you as his advice to take your own health with herbs to heal will, again, inspire you to look into herbal therapy and all it can do for one's body. Many of you listening are probably already aware that I co-created the Digestive Support Protein Powder by NewZest back in 2018, and it's been their top three seller ever since. Why? Because it actually works and benefits the digestive system. Countless of my Instagram followers have told me they can't go a day without it, and myself included. Unlike other vegan protein powders, Mine is made without stevia, fake sweeteners, gums, or natural flavorings, which are commonly found in not only protein powders, but in so-called gut support products. And let me tell you, these additives can really wreak havoc on our digestive system. Plus, I also included a specific probiotic scientifically proven to fight off candida and support the gut within the powders. So you're not only getting clean protein powder, but also things that actually support the gut, as well as L-glutamine, which helps restore the gut lining. My digestive support protein is vegan, paleo, and keto-friendly, as well as suitable for those on a candida or diabetic diet. It is also glyphosate-free and contains no gluten, grains, or lectins. And if you want to grab a tub and start your journey to a healthier and happier gut and ultimately happier life, go to newzest.us slash digest for a discount and experience what countless others have and live without the digestive discomfort. Again, go to N-U-Z 
E-S-T dot U-S slash digest. Dr. Bill Rawls, why don't you first introduce yourself to my listeners because you have an amazing story. So Okay. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I have been a physician for over 30 years and a third, two-thirds of that was as a conventionally trained physician. I practiced obstetrics and gynecology. Um, but it was in a small town and in a time where, you know, you were taking call every second to third night. And I was just one of those people that if someone was in the hospital or in labor or had issues, then I just didn't sleep. So I spent, you know, most of my life sleep deprived for 15 or 20 years and finally caught up with me. My body started falling apart. Um, first, I identified with fibromyalgia. Um, I had all the gut fun- dysfunction you could possibly describe, um, but everything else, you know, brain fog, my joints were falling apart. I had heart arrhythmias, everything. Um, finally, found that I had some of the microbes associated with Lyme disease. And that was kind of the aha moment that I think everybody with fibromyalgia is looking for. You know, if I can get diagnosed with this microbe, then it's treatable and I can get well. But um, didn't turn out that way. Like most people with chronic Lyme disease, antibiotics made me worse instead of better. And just by default, um, not having any other options, I turned to herbal therapy and gradually got better. Um, It wasn't overnight. You know, it took uh, months of hard work. I changed my diet. I changed my lifestyle. But the herbs made this huge difference that, you know, by age 50, I thought my functional life was done. And then the herbs came along and it just changed everything. But it also changed my conventional view as a physician, you know, it it really questions a lot of things that I learned in medical school and changed how I looked at chronic illness um, to the point that, you know, I really, I changed my practice. I changed my life. And I've spent the past 15 years really trying to understand what the herbs are doing and looking at herbs from a very different point of view than traditional herbalism. And here I am now, 65, great health, Wonderful. <laughs> better health than average for most people. Got back everything that I lost. And, you know, I'm still doing things like kite surfing, which is just awesome. Awesome. Well, I have so many questions here. So first of all, so you um, you are dealing with fibromyalgia, Lyme. Yes. Um, what do you think brought all this on? Do you think it was sleep deprived and your past just a routine of just nonstop working and stress? Do you feel like that actually brought it on or do you think it was something else? No, you know, I think I probably had the microbes since I was a kid. And the fact of the matter is there are an awful lot of people that are carrying tick-borne microbes that don't know it. Um, The issue is that so many things that we're exposed to through our lifetime when we're children, um, from tick bites, dog bites, respiratory infections. You know, we all have this feeling that, you know, you get sick and then the sick, your, your symptoms go away, whether you take antibiotics, whatever, um, that the, the microbes, the bacteria, the viruses, the whatever are gone. And 
what my studies are showing is that's just not the case. And so we have microbes coming into our bloodstream all the time. So there are low-grade things that we're exposed to that we just don't get sick from. We don't really have symptoms or we're not enough to notice. Plus, things are coming from our gut, from our gums, from our sinuses, from our skin, entering our bloodstream. And if we if if we're healthy, if our tissues are healthy, if our cells are healthy, then these things can become dormant and just stay in our tissues. But if you're under chronic stress, then they can reactivate. And that's when problems start. That was going to be just my next question is if you did do think that these microbes you've had since you were a kid, you think just the stress brought them up to surface and um, they were no longer dormant. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody is afraid of tick-borne infections, Lyme disease. I think that's very reasonable. You know, we ought to do everything we can to keep bitten, be, being bitten from ticks because ticks carry so many different things. But the fact of the matter is these aren't highly virulent microbes. So virulence is the potential for something to, to cause illness. So Ebola is highly virulent. HIV is highly virulent. Borrelia that causes Lyme disease and a lot of the other tick-borne microbes aren't. You know, ticks have been biting humans since beginning of time, and our immune system has a lot of built-in immunity. So typically, when people get that bacteria from a tick bite, um, they don't get terribly sick. You know, Lyme disease, the acute infection, doesn't kill people. Um, and a lot of people, like me, that pick things up and they never really know that they've had them. So it can be dormant in your tissues for a long time. I've talked to an awful lot of people that identify with chronic Lyme disease, people that have all these crazy symptoms that I did, have a positive test for Lyme disease or the Borrelia microbe, but don't remember ever getting bitten by a tick or don't remember an acute illness. That's 95% of the people I've talked to, 95%. But if you carry it back, most all of them have a perfect storm of something, uh, some kind of stress. And it can be uh, emotional stress, mental stress, uh, toxic stress, like exposure to chronic exposure to toxins or mold or things, other things in the environment. So uh, sometimes trauma, you know, I've certainly yeah. had people that became ill after they were in, like in an automobile accident and they were in the hospital for a prolonged period of time. There's a lot of stress and then they just never got better. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, there's uh, a few people that I know, and I can even speak for myself that I've noticed when I go through something traumatic or, you know, the passing of a loved one or just an overload of work, whatever, et cetera, uh, that my health just goes completely down and others as well. And these things get brought up just because of the stress, the cortisol levels get, you know, um, inflated and just things are now just exposed um, from what you were, again, saying, just dormant um, microbes, and now they're resurfacing. Um, and so w what 
made you turn to herbs specifically? Like you tried everything else. It wasn't working. Like what, what told you go do try herbs? Yeah, that was it. There wasn't anything else. You know, (laughs) I was, um, I stopped doing obstetrics. That caused me to have to leave the practice that I was in, but I really didn't have the option of declaring disability. I had two kids in college at the time and I just couldn't stop. Um, So I started a medical practice that was just general practice, didn't require me to take the kind of night call that I had been taking. Um, But it was, you know, I couldn't leave town. I had to cover the practice. Um, Didn't, you know, I took a really big drop in income, especially the first several years. And I didn't have time to go, the ability to go and pursue uh, care from others. And, you know, so if I couldn't bring it to me, then it just wasn't an option. So I looked at all the things out there, you know, I mean, there are a lot of crazy stuff that people do for Lyme disease, but, but I, when I'm evaluating any kind of therapy, I like to look at three primary parameters, efficacy, you know, is there any, any evidence to suggest that it might be beneficial? Um, so for herbal therapy and Lyme disease, a guy named Stephen Booner, who just recently passed away, by the way, um, wrote a book called Healing Lyme that was an herbal protocol for Lyme disease. And he cited thousands of people that had used the protocol um, and gained benefit. So eh, there was at least some efficacy. Searches on the internet, you know, there were a lot of people that that suggested. No scientific study published, but that was good information. Mm-hmm. Second is safety. You know, there are a lot of things out there that might have good efficacy. They might have a study in a journal, but they really are threatening. They could do terrible things to you. And right, you like look the at the herbal effects. therapy and I researched the herbs that I was considering. And it was like, you know, the chances of it actually hurting me are really, really small. And then the third was cost. I just couldn't afford a whole lot. And I could get these herbal extracts, bring them to me. So that put that as the top option beyond antibiotics for something to try. Um, And quite frankly, going into it, I didn't have high expectations. It was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll give this a month or two and just see. But my medical training had biased me against it that herbs were really just kind of weak versions of drugs and yeah, probably wasn't going to get anything. But it's like, what have I got to lose? Well, drugs are made from herbs. (laughs) Most, many of them are. Yes and no. Here's some interesting trivia for you. Do enlighten me, please. When you look at that spectrum of herbs of what we define as an herbs, there are at one end of the spectrum, some herbs with strong drug-like properties. And those aren't herbs that I use very often, or they are not used very heavily in traditional medicine because they have that potential to have some pretty strong side effects and adverse reactions. Okay. Um, Most of your drugs come from plants that are poisons. Interesting. Yes, it's true. So what we want from a drug 
is something that is going to have a very direct and targeted effect on some system in the body, you know, either in blocking an enzyme or affecting some specific neurotransmitter, but we want selective. We want to knock out a symptom or, you know, affect a disease process. So herbs, when you look at the kind of herbs that I use, they're very different in drugs. They don't really have strong drug-like effects. So most of our, our drugs that have come from herbs are plants that are, are poison and they pull one chemical out so, so they can get this specific targeted effect. And of course, you know, if you use that in a therapeutic dose, you can get a very desired and sometimes very important effect that can reduce symptoms, slow progression of an illness. But you use it anything over that therapeutic dose you can kill somebody with it. For sure. That's yeah. why we have to invest so much money on drug approval because there's such a high potential to hurt people. For sure. And I mean, you can even you can overdose on herbs. You know, um, that's something that everyone should know too, just because it's natural and it's an herb, you can definitely overdose. You can, but the potential for harm is so much smaller. All right. So it's like uh, we have, we got the toxicology report for an extract, one of the extracts that we use in our, uh, some of our products. And, and this is pretty typical for most of the herbs that we're using. So the toxic dose, the dose that it would require to, in, to actually cause significant harm to a human for that particular extract was 3,000 capsules a day. 3,000 capsules a day, right? What extract was this? Uh, that was a, a garlic extract, actually. Okay, garlic. One of the garlic extracts we used, but that's true of most of the herbs that we're using. So the difference is what you're getting with a drug is very targeted therapy. And again, there are some herbs that do that. You know, some herbs like St. John's wort have very drug-like properties. Um, cinnamon, like if you overdose on cinnamon, that's like... You can, you know. but less so, you know, so so the toxi toxicity is is much reduced with cinnamon, you know, you can you can get by with that. But the problem with cinnamon actually is that we can go off on a tangent here in a minute, but I know, right? the, the toxicity is because it's more because it's an essential oil than than an herb. But most of the herbs we're using have a very, very low potential for toxicity. It's uh, so, and what they're doing is actually affecting stress factors that affect our cells. Well, I want to get into what those herbs are, but before I do, I, I really am curious too about again your story and what you did. Did you just start incorporating herbs, or did you change your diet and lifestyle as well, or was it was your diet already pretty healthy? Yes and no. You know, I was trying to follow good dietary recommendations before these health issues came along. But, you know, back in my 30s and early 40s, I wasn't as particular. You know, life was so busy. Um, you ate fast food a lot or, you know, cookies and, and grape juice in labor and delivery because you couldn't get out to get anything else. Mm -hmm. You were kind of stuck there. So, yes, we, you know, my, my health habits weren't perfect, but back in the 80s, we were getting a lot of, uh, 
you know, information that we would consider bad advice today. Um, you know, it was carbohydrates weren't bad, fats were bad. Right. Um, and then it was, well, we shouldn't be eating white bread, you know, but whole grains are fine. Eat all the whole grains you mm-hmm. want, you know. And and so I was eating a lot of whole grains. It's like whole grain pasta, sure, and whole grain bread and whole grain this and whole grain that. And, you know, constipation for me was getting worse and worse. And it was like, well, I need more fiber. So I was eating mm-hmm. bowls full of raisin bran, mm-hmm. you know, by these monster yeah. bowls of raisin bran and getting worse and worse. And finally, you know, when things, when I started making this transition, I pretty much just gave up most grains, um, like so many people do. And that really helped the gut dysfunction quite a lot. So are you on a lower carb diet or you just just no grains? You still eat like sweet potatoes and things like that? Um, I maybe eat a little bit of grain, but not that much. Um, my guidelines for uh, eating, uh, my, my top guideline is I try to keep my carbohydrate intake to below 150 grams a day. So that's not ketogenic. And I've no. found that going ketogenic pushes you to eat more animal fat than you really, really need to or should. Um, plus, it's just not very comfortable to me. Um, so ketogenic is like below 75 grams of carbohydrate a day. Bump it up to 150 and you can you can do life. You know, you don't yeah. have to be quite as particular. But I found that keeps my weight comfortable. I feel better. So that's a pretty good guideline. My second is I try to eat more vegetables than anything else every day, no exceptions. Mm-hmm. You know, so like for breakfast, um, I'll have uh, a fried egg and then sauteed salad greens with some pesto or something like that, mm-hmm. but not much carb in it. I don't typically eat much carbohydrate until after 12, and I try to cut my eating window off at six o'clock. Um, so keeping the carbs down and at the same time trying to eat more vegetables than anything else, if you can do those two things, that's really good. And then if you decide to uh, eat meat or not eat meat, you know, that's that's really uh, you, the person's call of how they want to get their protein and what kind of food sensitivities they have. So I ran into an issue that 75% of the foods that I was eating were I was sensitive to. I was having pretty good, bad sensitivity reactions at that time because I had really bad leaky gut. And so I couldn't eat soy. I couldn't eat nuts very much. I mean, there were just so many foods and I wasn't sensitive to meat. So it was, it was by default. I had to do that as mm-hmm. a protein source, but I tried to eat more meat, more uh, seafood and and poultry, um, but I tried to stick to that more vegetables than anything else. And you know, vi- vegetable fiber is just super important for the gut, just so important. Yeah, I mean, everyone reacts so differently too, and it's kind of everybody is different. So you kind of have to do a trial and error for yourself, just because this person's doing it and it's working for them, doesn't mean it's gonna work for you and vice versa. 
but uh, I do see the benefit in in what you're saying, and also just going back to you know um, not eating carbs first thing in the morning. That is a huge thing um, for me as well, is because that spikes your blood sugar when you have carbs, especially you know which which kind. Um, so introducing that introducing carbs after you've already eaten some protein, a little fat, a little something, um, makes it so that your, your blood sugar doesn't spike. Um, so you did change your diet from what you were eating, uh, when you were practicing. And then did you change your diet and you also implemented the herbs at the same time? I was, I was working you know, it, it was, um, I was asking myself a lot of questions and really redirecting my thoughts of of how we should be looking at chronic illness in that um, what we do in chronic illness is the first thing we do is we look for the diagnosis, right? You know, we, we want symptoms and labs and physical findings or whatever to define the person's diagnosis. And we do that because that defines the medical therapy that the person might might use. And for acute illnesses, breaking your leg, whatever, it works pretty well. But when you look at chronic illnesses, it breaks down. And typically, we're just treating the manifestations of the illness so people don't get well. So I started asking that question, why are people sick? And Obviously, you know, looking at this thing called chronic Lyme disease, the microbes are part of it. But again, there are an awful lot of people who don't get sick. And I didn't get sick until I had all of these other things. So I started asking those questions. What kinds of things promote illness? You know, so we can look at dietary factors. We look at toxins in the environment. We look at you know, it's stress and not sleeping. That's huge. We look at lifestyle, sedentary lifestyle. So all of those things, um, I was asking those questions and doing the obvious thing of, you know, how do I clean these things up? And I got better, but not back to normal. And the difference between, you know, just doing those things and starting the herbs, which came a little bit later, the herbs were like, wow, this is remarkable. This is whatever efforts I'm making, this is exponentially improving that. Over 16,000 research studies on sodium lauryl sulfate have shown links to irritation of the skin and eyes, organ toxicity, developmental reproductive toxicity, neurotoxicity, endocrine disruption, and biochemical or cellular changes. This is one of the most common ingredients in laundry detergent. That is just one of many toxic ingredients found in almost all laundry detergents and cleaning soaps. What we wash our clothes and sheets with is just as important as what we put on our bodies and in it. And it plays a major factor in our internal and external health. It can affect our digestive system, hormones, immune system, and thinking, as well as skin issues. That's why switching to a truly non-toxic laundry detergent is so important. If you haven't heard of Truly Free Home, then listen up. 
Truly Free Homes non-toxic and eco-friendly laundry detergent is free from all thickeners, dyes, optical brighteners, synthetic fragrances, and other harmful chemicals. It's available in plant-based essential oil scents or entirely unscented. And every first order arrives with a forever jug that is BPA-free, and all future orders are refills, making less waste. Plus, you get free shipping. Truly Free Home is offering my listeners 300 free laundry loads, and no subscription is required. Just click on the link in the show notes and get 300 free laundry loads, and it will be automatically applied. Why don't you explain exactly what you did and what those herbs are and what those extracts are? All right. Um, at that time, I was using, you know, my mindset was I have Lyme disease, I have to kill the microbes, which is so much of what most everybody looks at. Um, I'm now in a completely different place and don't even hardly use the diagnostic system anymore for chronic illness because I just don't think it works. But at that time, it was I need to kill the microbes. So I was reading this information and about herbs with antimicrobial properties, herbs that could kill bacteria, kill viruses, that sort of thing. Um, I've come since come to appreciate that all herbs have antimicrobial properties. They have to, because plants have to protect themselves against bacteria and viruses and protozoa and all this other stuff, just like we do. So plants don't have an immune system made up of cells. They have a chemical defense system. So the difference in an antibiotic is an antibiotic is a single agent that's designed to block bacterial replication in a specific way. Um, What you're getting with a plant is a defense system made up of hundreds and hundreds of chemicals. And because different plants in different environments have to are, are associated with different microbe stress, when you combine herbs together, when you blend several herbs, you get a broader spectrum of coverage. Um, The most interesting thing about herbs, you know, when you look at these antimicrobial properties, they're real, they've been proven. We've got a whole series of Johns Hopkins studies showing how real they truly are, but it didn't mess up my gut. That was the big deal, Mm. right? I took doxycycline and tried other antibiotics every single time, two weeks into it, my gut would be a wreck. It was already bad. It would be 10 times worse. The herbs made it better. The herbs actually improved my gut function. And what I've come to appreciate, and actually there are studies, scientific studies documenting this, the herbs, it's more like an innate intelligence. So the herbs are selectively suppressing pathogens in the gut and on the skin, but they are not disrupting our normal flora. So I actually find that herbs work better than probiotics for balancing gut function. It's really interesting. So taking the herbs, my gut was getting better at the same time all my other symptoms were getting better. So that's really interesting. Um, herbs that I was using, um, herbs that we define as antimicrobial herbs, Japanese knotweed, really great herb, and it is a source of resveratrol. 
um, which is what you find in grapes and wine. But it, it, Japanese knotweed is an invasive weed, and it's actually a better source of resveratrol. But it has all these other chemicals that have been documented to have antibacterial, antiviral, antiprotozoal properties. Cat's claw from the Amazon, um, long used for arthritis and, and cognitive functions, has some really nice antimicrobial properties that have been documented. Uh, garlic extracts. Excellent antimicrobial. Um, Andrographis, one of my favorite antivirals. But then some of our adaptogens have immune modulating and, and uh, antiviral properties, cordyceps, reishi, um, and then a final herb, Chinese skullcap. Um, now, you hear about herbs like echinacea, for treating viral infections, and they're great for acute viral infections, but these are immune stimulators. So if you use them continually, they can actually rub up your immune system too much. So you don't want to use some of some herbs long-term. The ones that I just referred to are immune modulators. So they have this property of uh, balancing immune system functions, overactive portions of the immune system like um, allergies and that sort of thing, it'll actually calm them. Underactive, uh, taking out microbes that have infected cells, it'll bump those up. So you can take them for a long time without worrying about immune dysfunction. Uh, associated with it for immune, extra immune stimulation. So I literally took these herbs for years. Now, I, I mean, some of these may, I'm sure maybe my listeners have never even heard of like Japanese knotweed, Chinese skullclap, cat's claw. Uh, and for example, echinacea, that is pretty commonly known now. And do you feel that maybe Western medicine is just not promoting them or you're not seeing them for a reason? And what's your take on that? And how did you discover them yourself? Well, it was through reading and research. Um, and actually, there are dozens and dozens of herbs that have recognized antimicrobial properties. In fact, it, it turns out that all herbs have antimicrobial properties, some that you would not think about, like turmeric that you find in curry has great antimicrobial properties. Um, many of the day herbs that I use just on a daily basis do. And you have to think about that, you know, part of our herbal tradition is using herbs like various culinary herbs and spices. Uh, we use them now for flavor, but what they were used for through history was to reduce spoilage because they kill microbes. So all plants have antimicrobial properties, and that gets really important. Now, would I treat an acute pneumonia or maybe even a bladder infection with herbs? No, um, they don't have that same potency. So when you're talking about bacteria that are you know, just invading the body, and they're outside cells of the body, um, or you know they're in the bloodstream, you know, circulating around. Um, these antibiotics are going to knock down the numbers of those bacteria faster than anything, and so there's definitely a place. But long-term use of of any conventional antibiotic 
you start to stimulate bacterial resistance and you disrupt normal flora in the gut. That's the big advantage of the herb. So when we look at things that might be associated with chronic infections with any kind of microbe, um, then the herbs are really a good choice and not just these antimicrobial herbs. You know, it's like the everyday herbs that I recommend. I have my list, uh, rhodiola and reishi and turmeric and go-to cola and a few other herbs. They all have some antimicrobial properties. And the fact of the matter is, this is a big deal, not just for people who are struggling with fibromyalgia or chronic Lyme disease. I, you know, there's pretty good evidence suggesting that most illnesses have a microbial component, whether you're talking about dementia, Parkinson's, MS, anything, autoimmune illnesses. Um, and the deal is what the research is now showing is, you know, we have things coming in our system all the time. So you've experienced pretty significant gut dysfunction. Um, and you know that there's an imbalance of, uh, you know, this dysbiosis that we have of pathogens. There was a study in 2015 that showed that bacteria regularly trickle across from the gut into the bloodstream in everybody. Dysbiosis, that becomes a flood of pathogens. Where do they end up? Your brain, your heart, your joints, everywhere. And so these are the kinds of things, these day-to-day -day things that are affecting all of us. The herbs can really have a huge advantage. So back to your question, why aren't doctors recommending it? They just, they don't see that way, right? It's not in their education. They're not looking at the same studies that I am. Um, you know, what medical students are being taught today as far as how illness occurs and, how, and, and the fundamentals of how we treat it is really no different than it was 30 years ago when I was in medical school. Yeah. It hasn't been updated. All of the education, the funding for the education is coming from pharmaceutical companies. Mm. And, you know, so more and more physicians, I think, are starting to, to be open to herbs and other natural therapies, but they just don't get any of it in their training. Um, yeah. So they just don't, they, they don't understand how they work. Well, and I definitely feel like there is a time and a place for, um, you know, Western medicine and for antibiotics, of course, but I feel like it's also way overprescribed. And when it's overprescribed, they tend to then not have an effect when you truly do need them. Um, for example, like what if someone, for someone with a chronic UTI and they're always taking antibiotics, I mean, they cannot be good for them. Um, would you recommend an herb for chronic UTIs or what would you say, like continue to take this or that? Um, no, you know, when we, somebody has chronic urinary tract infection, generally they, they aren't showing a bacteria. And what that shows, tells me is their, their cellular health is suffering, but they have reactivation of, of, uh, not just one bacteria, many, and they're silent bacteria that we don't find like urea plasmas and mycoplasmas that have been associated with 
pelvic pain, premature rupture of membranes, just about every gynecologic thing you can imagine, probably even including endometriosis. Um, you know, those things, they just aren't going to respond to antibiotics. And because the antibiotics disrupt the normal flora, um, you know, it's if, if you had asked me 30 years ago, I would have said urine and the bladder are sterile. And now I know that isn't true. You know, we do have a, a uh, microbiome of the bladder that lives there in, in, you know, along our tissues. Um, and, you know, if, if you're disrupting that, then you set yourself up for all kinds of problems. And, you know, so you, know, what you look at our normal flora, I mean, we all think about the immune system, right, as being our primary defense. And we actually have four levels of defense against microbes. All right. Okay. The first one is our normal flora. So the immune system doesn't reach into the gut contents and it doesn't reach out onto the skin. So our normal flora, those bacteria that we have that mutual relationship with, actually secrete substances that suppress pathogens. So it's really important that they're intact. So that's our first level of defense. So if you disrupt your normal flora, you're, you know that's potentially going to have long-term issues. This second layer is is uh, barriers. You know, we we have our skin, we have the intestinal lining. You know, those are designed to keep things out of our tissues. Then our immune system, because those barriers are leaky. But finally, the cells of our body have some defense mechanisms that can actually expel microbes too. Well, I mean that what actually is leading into my my next question is you you said that person that's maybe getting chronic infections their cellular health is suffering. So what what does it mean to be um healthy or what does it mean to heal on a cellular level? Yeah, I know that's it, it's big to think about, but you have to think small. And the body seems really complicated, but if you take it down to its smallest functional unit, then you simplify everything and you really change the whole conversation. So the smallest functional unit in our body is a living cell. And that makes us very different than any mechanical device, right? Your car, the unit is the car, um, a 747 that is a unit, a uh, cell phone, it's a unit. So something breaks in that unit and it's, it's not going to work again until you fix it. So our body, though, the coolest thing about it is we're made of cells. So you can actually lose cells. In fact, we lose about a billion cells a day that you can lose cells and your heart keeps right on beating. It can lose cells. Um, you know, you, you constantly shed skin cells and intestinal cells. So that, so the smallest unit is a living cell. Everything, absolutely everything that happens in the body is a function of cells. Whether that's your heart beating, whether it's thyroid hormone being produced by your thyroid gland, brain impulses firing, it's all cells. So cells, being self-contained units, they need certain things to be healthy. So they need nutrients, 
They need a clean environment that's free of contaminants and toxins. They need downtime to recover from just that day-to-day job stress of working. And uh, they need good flow of nutrients and good flow of fluid to carry away waste. And every cell in the body needs that. Every cell. And as we age, do our cells get depleted? And if they do, um, can can we reverse that? Um, well, I'm living proof that you can really get a lot back that you lose. There's no doubt. But yes, aging is defined by loss of functional cells. So one of the remarkable things about our cells is that they, is that they can repair internal damage or regenerate new cells. That is fundamentally what healing is, is the ability of cells in the body to repair and regenerate. It's really important to recognize that. But all cells in the body gradually burn out their mitochondria and lose energy. So that that capacity of self-repair and regeneration declines with time. Your peak cell count occurs about age 20. At age 20, you've got basically all brand new cells. You've accumulated as many cells as you're going to get. And you have five to 10 times more cells than you need to survive. For the rest of your life, that cell count will gradually decline. If there was no stress, if we could live life with absolutely that was free of stress, then the average life expectancy calculated from that model is 120 years. And that's the oldest that a doctor, that a person has lived. Wow. And now speaking of stress, do you feel like that is the number one killer? Um, well, it depends on what you're talking about, stress. So I define different stress factors, all right? So when cells are stressed, they use more energy, they work harder, and they burn out faster. So we lose cells faster than that ideal situation if there was no stress. So five categories of stress. Um, nutritional stress, you know, and that can be not necessarily not getting enough nutrients. It can be getting the wrong ratios of carbohydrates and bad fats and that sort of thing. So that actually is really harmful to our cells. Excessive carbohydrates are one of the worst things that we can do to our cells. Not just a cell or a group of cells, every cell in the body, you're tearing apart when you eat too much carb. And too much carb, Um, that just contributes to sugar that transfers, right? Because Right. There's a process called glycation that if you're eating excessive carbohydrate, that really, you know, glucose that we get from starches and sugar is a highly reactive molecule. It's loaded with energy, but it's so reactive it tends to stick to proteins. So that protein sticking effect that we call glycation is occurring whenever you eat any carbohydrate. But the more carb you eat, the higher that rate is going to be. So it's basically like pouring molasses into the machinery of your cells. It's just going to gum things up. And 
it's a bad collagen cruncher. You know, collagen is a molecule that supports our skin and our blood vessels and everything. It causes that collapse, that molecule to to collapse. So uh, it's a bad collagen cruncher. So too much glucose is really one of the worst things you can do. And, you know, our whole population is suffering from that. We're just killing ourselves with carbs. Not, I mean, carbs, not just carbs, but refined carbs. And then on top of carbs, just sh- straight up sugar. Um, so there, that definitely well, does Well, you know, it, all the sugar and starches and fruit juices, they're all carbs. They're, yeah, I mean, and uh, that is definitely a stress right there on your body. Right, so, so that's, that's, a, that's the biggest nutritional stress. Okay. So the next category is toxic stress. We're getting a lot of that too. That can be natural toxic substances like mold in our house, but part of that is because our houses are sealed so tightly. And out here in the East, a lot of people have that issue. But um, but the big thing is just all the petrochemicals, the abnormal chemicals in the environment from using petroleum and producing plastics and burning coal. And that has put an unprecedented uh, concentration of toxic substances in our air and our water and our food. Um, You can get around it, but what it does, basically these abnormal chemicals uh, get stuck in our cells and they inhibit the cellular functions. Again, not of one cell, but every cell in the body. Those are huge. And also toxins, I I think just from the glyphosate sprayed, on our food, which is again, going back to the the nutritional aspect, but that's a huge toxin. And then I feel like even the toxins that we, the perfumes and different um, chemicals that's in our laundry detergent, even, you know, um, we can go on and on. It it is. And, you know, and and I was just listening to um, uh, a radio show. It was talking about Rachel Carson and back in the 60s, you know, she was the first one to kind of raise the red flag about all the toxins. But much of it, much of it was visible then. It was pollution and, you know, and garbage and sewage and the rivers and lakes. Now, so much of what we're exposed to is invisible. You know, we don't see it. We don't smell it. We don't feel it per se, but it's there and it's, it's big. There. The other side of that toxic environment is we're getting a lot of unnatural radiation. And you and I are getting it right now, sitting in front of a television, in front of a computer screen. So toxic um, mental stress, just pushing that stress button, keeping up with schedules and deadlines, it, it, keeping our bodies in high alert rob cells of the downtime that they need to recover. And that's especially true in sleep. You know, sleep is important for a lot of the things, but one of the biggest things is that's the time when the cells of your body have downtime to recover. That's when healing is taking place. And if you're you're cutting your sleeping window down to six and a half hours of broken sleep without deep sleep instead of a good seven and a half to eight hours, your cells aren't getting that downtime and you start your day behind the eight ball, or at least your cells do. So there are, you know, they did, they haven't had time to recharge. Sleep so is that's so important. Big. Yeah. And then exercise, um, you know, in that category, I put trauma. Trauma used to be huge. Um, that killed more people than anything else for most of time. But 
we have solved a lot of that problem. Now we're too sedentary because machines are doing all the work. So we're not overworked, but sedentary, the, the, what exercise is really important for is moving blood more than anything else. So when you exercise, you increase the heart rate, you dilate your blood vessels, your body warms up, and that floods that cellular space with fluid that not only delivers nutrients and oxygen, it also pulls waste away from the cells. So that's the first step in detoxification. You know, everybody talks about detox protocols and all of this. Best thing you can do to start that detoxification process is go take a, a walk for a couple of miles because mm -hmm. you're going to, to start purging those toxins from the cells where they're trapped and doing the damage. That's amazing. And also, would you, would you add to that uh, sweating would be a good detoxer? Sweating is part of it. We do heard some toxins in sweat that has been documented with sauna. So another uh, way to move blood, if you, you know, a lot of Lyme people uh, and other people with chronic illnesses, their body is so inflamed, they can't really move very well. So I always recommend sauna because sauna dilates blood vessels, moves blood, but without generating friction, just, you know, moving uh, ligaments across bones. Um, but for everybody else, you know, I, I set a, a minimum of three miles a day. I walk at least three miles every day, and that's my very minimum. And so that it, it's just really important to move that to, to, to that. That's a great step. And then that fifth category is the microbes, which is, you know, we could go on for five hours on that one, but what's in the research, this emerging research is, uh, it's pretty interesting. If you're looking to take back your health, it's time for you to listen to the Real Foodology podcast. From the producer of Digest This comes one of Apple Podcast's top 10 nutrition shows, hosted by integrative nutritionist and real food activist, Courtney Swan. The Real Foodology podcast is on a mission to change the way we eat. Courtney interviews doctors, food experts, health professionals, and nutrition pioneers to bring you the best info so you can thrive. Somewhere along the way, we lost sight of how impactful our food choices are. But it's never too late to start on the path of better health choices. You'd be so surprised how resilient our bodies are when we start taking care of them. Yes, it's overwhelming, but that's why Courtney's here to help. She breaks it down for you and makes the information more accessible so that you can make more informed decisions in the grocery aisle or restaurant. Listen to the Real Foodology podcast today on your favorite podcast app. New episodes every Wednesday, produced by Drake Peterson and Resonant Media. I, I'm super interested. And I mean, I, I could, again, I can talk about this forever and just thinking about dormant microbes. So, I mean, how long can they be inside ourselves or can we even detox from them or are they just always there? Yeah. This is emerging research and there's a lot we don't know, you know, 
Our research on microbes has been limited to mainly pathogens. Over the past 30 years or more, we've looked at things that can infect us and cause symptomatic illness. We haven't paid very much to, in attention to things that are under the radar. And it turns out that most of the microbes we're exposed to are under the radar. And, you know, it's only been very recently that we've really started cataloging what's in our gut and on our skin. When I was in medical school, it was thought that there were, might be 800 species of bacteria in the gut. Now that's upwards of somewhere between 20 and 40,000 species. And, you know, but it was thought, well, they're in the gut, they're isolated, they're contained by the intestinal lining. But now in the past five years, these studies showing that, well, no, actually they leak across and get in the bloodstream pretty regularly. And then there are studies that show that we actually, it looks like we have a microbiome of the brain of bacteria that come from the gut, the skin, the sinuses, the gums, and we're finding gum microbes and, and, and intestinal microbes and atherosclerotic plaques and you know, so it just it looks like our insides are mm, a lot more dynamic when it comes to microbes. So, yes, I think that there's there's a good possibility that many things can stay dormant inside our tissues, inside our cells, very specifically. Um, you know, a bacteria is about a thousand times smaller than a cell. So you can actually have a bacteria inside your cells or, or, you know, like a cluster of bacteria that the cell basically walls off and they just go dormant. And it appears to be a survival mechanism of the bacteria. There's even some suggestions or from some researchers that maybe even this relationship is symbiotic in some ways with certain bacteria that maybe some of our cells actually need this. So I think we're right, right on the verge of very interesting research, but it's research that's going to rewrite our understanding of what chronic illness is. And I think we're going to find connections to microbes to virtually every chronic illness and most cancers. Wow. Well, what I have, I, again, I have so many questions, but um, for time's sake here, like what is the number one thing you attribute to healing? If you could point pinpoint that. Well, healing is cellular health, right? So it's um, it, it's more of those five things, I think. Okay. Um, so it is how you nourish yourselves. It is getting plenty of sleep. It is living in a clean environment. Um, it is, you know, uh, getting the exercise to get that flow dead. So, so it's about cellular health. If your cells are healthy, your healing potential is is as good as it can be for your age. And I can tell you at age 65, I'm healing not only much better than I did in my 40s or 50s. You know, we all have things. Um, you know, I'm a pretty active person physically and, and, you know, you twist an ankle or a knee or whatever. I my recovery is is much less than what it was when I was younger because my cellular health is about as good as it could be. So all of those things are important. And then 
herbs on top of that are remarkably important because the herbs are doing everything that we need to promote cellular health and enable healing. And that is the big difference between herbs and drugs, at least herbs, the ones that I'm classifying as herbs that I readily use. What the herbs are doing that the drugs aren't doing is promoting healing. Drugs really have very little capacity to truly promote healing. Again, they're important for reducing symptoms, stabilizing illness, but they don't actually directly do the things that promote healing. So that's why so many people with chronic illness just never get well. Right. So what the herbs are doing is suppressing these invasive microbes, these low-grade, under-the-radar pathogens, um, protecting cells from free radicals, enhancing our ability to remove toxic substances. So every level that we talk about, the herbs are affecting stress factors that interfere with cellular health. So by doing that, by, by reducing cellular stress, herbs optimize healing. And that is the biggest reason why every person ought to be taking herbs every day. Wonderful. And then you do have your book out now, The Cellular the cellular Wellness Solution, if I can even say it. Um, and why don't you share a little bit about that as well? Basically, it's, a, it's, a, it's about my journey of where I am now. Um, it's a little bit about my history and that journey through stress, but so much of it is my journey of discovery. What I've learned over the past 30 years, and especially the past 10 years of my career, um, looking at these alternative explanations of wellness and why we lose wellness to become ill, especially chronically ill, but also what we can do about it, and looking at the herbs from a Western science point of view that, you know, so much of our study is based on traditional herbalism, which is wonderful information. But where I came came to it was looking at how this, this interesting chemistry of the herbs is affecting our physiology, affecting our cells. And that's how we're gaining these benefits. So actually looking at the science. So I'm, so it's, it's a book about, uh, wellness. It's a book about, you know, really understanding how to use herbs properly and how to bring them into your life. And I give some examples of some basic herbs to start with just to, to reduce that intimidation of which ones, where, where, are I, where do I get go, I'm going with this thing? Um, but also just guidelines on diet and stress and all of these things. And finally, um, there's a fourth section on troubleshooting. Um, you know, how cardiovascular issues, uh, you know, I took different systems of the body and how do we apply these principles that we talk about in the first part of the book to individual problems. Wonderful. Well, everyone should go and grab the book, The Cellular Wellness Solution. Um, and it's full of information. I have it here as well. Um, and now last question, just something fun before um, we go, just uh, something I want to start asking every uh, guest here is uh, what is your favorite healthy dish to make in the kitchen? Like what is your go-to? Oh boy. You're, you're talking about somebody who loves to cook. I mean, it, <laughs> it's, um, 
I, I developed, I, I started cooking when I was a kid. I, I just, my, my mother loved to cook and I learned how to cook, but, um, oh my, um, maybe a Thai dish. I, oh. I, I love a good Thai. Um, and you know, one thing that I try to do is make cooking simple. Um, so, Whenever I'm cooking something on the stove, I typically use low to medium heat so we're not burning the food. Um, so a good Thai dish, something to start out with. Um, I usually do mushrooms and onions, sometimes some shallots or green onions in there too. And that will be the base. Um, and then I put different kinds of vegetables, zucchini, squash, um, maybe some cabbage um, and carrots, sometimes sweet potatoes. Sometimes I'll use regular potatoes, but usually mainly just vegetables. So I put a bunch of vegetables in there and then possibly um, sometimes shrimp, sometimes tofu um, and then seasonings. Uh, I like a nice combination of uh, a good curry powder. Uh, and it kind of depends on whether I want to go with a red curry or a green curry. Uh, if you can get some fresh basil or even better Thai basil, which has a little bit of a, an anise or licorice flavor to it. Um, a lime, got to add that, some vinegar. Um, I typically use a good quality sesame or grapeseed oil as a base in there. And uh, a little bit of vinegar, uh, salt and pepper, and then some coconut milk at the end. But uh, just put that on the, the, the stove and just simmer it on low heat. And the onions and the mushrooms will cook first, but then the vegetables, it's more like a steam. If you do it on low or low to medium heat, instead of frying everything and burning it, you end up with a vegetable, a taste that tastes sauteed, but it has the health benefits of steaming. Wow. You're make, that sounds delicious. You're making me salivate right here. <laughs> now I just want to cozy up and have a nice warm bowl of that. Um Wow. Well, thank you so much for, for being on the show and you are just a wealth of knowledge and your book and everything. And where else can people find you? Um, website, social media? Uh, well, we're on all the social media. Um, I, you know, I've, I've practiced for years. I'm actually spending most of my time writing and connecting with people and creating programs. And I do that through our company, Vital Plan which we sell herbal products, but we also provide a lot of education, uh, just helping people understand herbs, doing herbal combinations to make it easier for people to embrace herbal therapy, but then programs and education that goes along with that just to make it practical. Because when, really, when it boils around, right down to it, and you know this to be true, when you look at overcoming any kind of chronic condition, 90% of it is what you do, not what some healthcare provider does to you. And that's true of, you know, healthcare providers, we can guide people, but it's actually what you do that makes the difference. 
That's great advice. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bill Rawls, uh, for being on the show. And uh, everyone that's listening, go get his book and uh, I'll have it linked in the today's show notes as well for you to easily grab. My pleasure. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Chris McComb. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. As always, talk to your doctor or health team first.